For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Morning, Mo. I Morning. am uh, speaking to you from the wonderful headquarters of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in Needham, Massachusetts. There is lots of excitement in the air here in Boston because the Bruins are about to set the record for National Hockey League points in a single season. So as you know, this is a sporting community. The Red Sox are at spring training, et cetera, et cetera. And so all the obnoxious uh, Boston fans are, are beginning to come out <laughs> with spring. It's going to be 55 uh, here. Uh, and it's snowing in Minnesota. So uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I have my Ortho Joe Cup. Our guest, uh, Dr. Ted Micklaw, will receive one of these absolutely priceless cups uh, in the mail as a thanks uh, for speaking with us today. Uh, as mentioned, our guest is Dr. Ted Micklaw, University of California, San Francisco. A individual grew up in Puerto Rico, uh, is bilingual, he is the chief of orthopedics at San Francisco General, I think vice chair of the department. He has been president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association and the Orthopedic Research Society. So if uh, Mo, if you wish to talk about the latest uh, bone protein that might solve all nine unions, we could drift off into that conversation. But uh, we asked uh, Dr. Micklau to uh, discuss with us today uh, developing world uh, orthopedics. And I will just say that uh, I was privileged to attend a meeting he was very key in organizing the first International Orthopedic Trauma Association meeting in Amsterdam last December, and it was uh, absolutely an outstanding meeting. So Ted is a researcher both in basic and clinical sciences, and he is a leader uh, in addressing a developing world orthopedics uh, needs. So welcome, Ted, and uh, thank you for spending the time with Mo and I. Uh, maybe you could just start out with telling us how you got interested uh, in the topic of developing world orthopedics. What, what's your story there? Well, uh, first of all, thanks, Mark, for inviting me. And it's, it's an honor. Um, you know, both of you have, been, have played major influences on, on my career. And it's interesting just to start off this whole thing. My, my son is a, a third-year medical student at UCSF, and my daughter is a first-year medical student. And my daughter, and, and all of them have these medical student friends now that sort of congregate in our house, which is where they live. And so this is a little bit of a medical student slum. And they, uh, we had a, a conversation yesterday about careers in medicine and how careers can just take different curves in different directions. And how mine has has really gone in a variety of different directions too. You know, I welcome from San Francisco. It's it's wet and rainy here. We're hit by our tenth atmospheric uh, river that's come through here. And 
the one thing that's really nice about the environment here is that it has allowed for development of a bunch of different things. And so um, when I finished my residency, I did a trauma fellowship at Baylor. And then after that, I joined San Francisco General Hospital. They needed somebody who could help, who was interested in starting a research program. And I was able to partner with a basic scientist and do that. Prior to that, though, I had done some work internationally, as as, uh, Dr. Swankowski had said, I grew up in Puerto Rico. And in fact, I even tried to get a job back down there, but they um, didn't really have any academic opportunities for me, which should have been also a bellwether for a a future interest. But my job here was really to try to develop a research program and do trauma. I was happy doing that. And eventually I was uh, faced to be a, a leader here. And I took over as the chief orthopedics um, and it was out of attrition because a lot of people had left. And so we, I, I was faced with um, an opportunity to try to help develop our whole program here um, because there wasn't really a whole lot of people here. And early on in that, I started cultivating the interest that I had had during one of my fellowships post-residency uh, was uh, overseas at the AO uh, Research Institute. And also um, I went to uh, uh, Sangalan. Uh, Hanover and Berlin at the time that those were very influential programs and got a taste of the opportunities that were presented with having developed international relationships. And then I did a couple of traveling fellowships where I got to go meet, I think, Mo, that's probably the first time I met you was on a traveling fellowship. And and so all those things kind of came together in the early 2000s for me. And at that time, one of my partners, uh, Rick Coughlin, had been doing a lot of work that was really sort of medical tourism kind of thing where you go, you operate and you come back. And that was kind of part of the fabric that had been developing in our group. And we were, we would underwrite it. You know, we'd cover when he was gone. If there were additional things that needed to be paid for, we did that. And then we had to follow that. We were quite interested in saying, well, what if we did something that had a little more longevity? And we developed a residency. It was the first that I'm aware of, the first residency elective internationally. It was in Tata, South Africa. And we were able to also get that as an official opportunity for our residency bill. So that started the ball rolling. And we're thinking, well, there is something to this sustainable relationship, the sustainable partnership. It's not just us going doing research, different, or doing surgery at different places, but are there things that we could do to help people help themselves? And I just saw the movie, Jerry Maguire was the you know, lines, help me help you. And that's, that's kind of the direction we took. And so the mid 2000s, Rick and a couple of others from our group, and I was the, the chair of the department as well at the time, and we could put money into it. We developed this thing called the Institute for Global Orthopedic and Traumatology. And all that is, is in its umbrella organization that lives underneath the Department of Orthopedic Surgery that has a bunch of like-minded people who are interested in doing things internationally. And that thing has grown. And so we now have a board. We're trying to work on philanthropy to support some of the activities, but they're based on research, education, and leadership. And so we identify partners. We try to work with them to help them build their infrastructure and then don't abandon them, but sort of work with them from afar. And this additionally has blossomed uh, into trying to develop organizations. The power of individuals working with each other is very strong, but the power of organizations working with each other, like societies, academic societies, is massive. 
And these societies are the ones that develop new concepts. They can have people change practice. They can advocate for new directions. And so from this or within this I Got umbrella, we've also started having projects where we're working with different groups. A couple of those has been through the International Combined Orthopedic Research Society with the ORS, where we have societies that we work with and they partner with. There has the, the International OTA, which Mark was referring to in December as being a, an organization that the OTA has helped underwrite. We went from 12 societies to now have 25 of them from around the world. And they include not just the high economies, but the, the, the low and middle income country societies as well. And this has really uh, allowed for a very broad reach. In fact, before this interview, I was just on a, on a call where we had um, people from all over the globe trying to work on how to promote trauma care you know, across continents. So this is super exciting. And then personally, I've taken this also. And then Mo, you, you may have a, a, a question in the next direction because I'm sort of giving you this whole long history that's pretty complicated for, for me. But it's, um, it's this development of an interest in Latin America. And so about six years ago, we developed this group called the Association of Trauma Surgeons in the Americas or Actuar. And it was a group of people that I had known as recognized leaders from doing AO uh, education in Latin America that were very interested in, in promoting research and leadership in Latin America as uh, something that doesn't really exist easily there. So 1% of all of the articles that are published in major journals come from Latin America, but clearly their population represents more than that. And so how do we do this? And we've been working with them and now have a network of um, individuals from all 20 Spanish-speaking countries throughout Latin America who are participating in research projects, who are helping work on leadership programs, who meet monthly. And it's all about networks. So it started very much as an individual. It started, you know, we, we were lucky to be in a university that allowed us to grow some things. And now it's really trying to cultivate these networks of groups that have colossal potential. And, and Mo, you've done this magically with all of the research that you're sort of the blueprint for uh, success on this, being able to do all these international research projects based on you know, your collaborations and your reach. And uh, you've been uh, quite an inspiration for all of this as well. well and, a, and a role model. And in fact, McMaster's partnered with many of the projects that we're doing. Uh, yeah. HipTac2, Enormous, you go down the list. Yeah. And I, I would say, Ted, I mean, like the one thing that, I mean, you're obviously very humble in what you've done, but, you know, for those listening or watching, it is an enormous task, I mean, period, to be able to, um, you know, one, just to have any network created. But I think those who know you, and I know uh, Mark and myself have known you for many, many years, I mean, you were fundamentally born for this. I mean, like you are a bridge builder. Anyone knows you like collaborations is part of your DNA. It's not part of everyone else's DNA, but I mean, you know, who does this type of work, but you are genuinely committed to this cause. I think it's been one of your core, you know, principles or guiding principles on how you, I think you function. I guess the question I have, and it's one that I don't have an answer to, but it's always been one that's perplexed, perplexed me is that the, let's say, let's, let's take trauma, for example, the majority, I mean, the, the vast majority of trauma occurs outside of developed nations, yet those countries in which trauma occurs participate very, very minimally in guiding the next directions or, or feel like they're even participating 
uh, in it. And I think a large part of it has been fundamentally an arrogance of developed nations to think, well, you know, it can't be done elsewhere, and therefore we will set that stage. Do you envision a world, and I, I suspect I know the answer to this, in which those roles are somewhat reversed or at a minimal uh, equalized, and then that, that we're getting a proportional amount of insight and information, and it exists, uh, and giving voices to, you know, uh, networks that absolutely should have a voice, and surgeons that absolutely should have a voice? And how do you do that, I guess? I mean, so you go through the stage of creating this pretty impressive network. How do you operationalize it so it can lead to the kind of change I think you want? Yeah, so so Mo, you hit on a lot of really important points. You know, the first of which is why don't these surgeons participate more significantly? And there are, it's not that they don't want to. I, I think the proportion of people who would, are interested in participating in research projects in Latin America, for example, aren't any less than those in the States. You know, there's some that are very active and there's some that, you know, are interested, but, you know, don't want to participate. And there's some that don't really care. They're just operating. And that, I, I don't see any difference. Now, they have way different obstacles. So they have financial obstacles. They have a different um, setup uh, in terms of their reward system. Um, they, ha they have, um, they don't have the same sort of resources that we have or, you know, they don't have Mo Bandari's floating around or Mark Swanikowski's as readily. And many of them, when they do, may even have language barriers um, or travel barriers. And so identifying those and then addressing what the obstacles are and including people, that's the, that's a first step. A second step is really developing networks. And the same obstacles exist for individual participation, exist in developing a network. You know, if there isn't someone who's organized or has resources that they can dedicate to this thing, then it, it then you have a hard time getting off the ground. And then the third one is the recognition that arrogance is one thing. I think ignorance is, is probably another way to look at it, that we just aren't informed well enough about what these obstacles are or what the practices are in different places around the world. So one of the things that was really interesting about the IOTA meeting was just the the depth of knowledge that existed uh, across different resourced areas on these very complicated situations that, it, that apply. So you can't take, for example, the resources that we have in the United States and then say, oh, well, this is how we would treat that patient in, in South Sudan. You just, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And they're the experts on that, not us. So we can learn a lot from them. And uh, one of my junior partners, uh, Dave Shearer, had written a, a K-23. And in the process of doing it, he wanted to do a research project, a, re a prospective randomized study in Tanzania, which um, he's presented before, and it's gotten better follow-up than we get in the United States. But the questions were, you know, can this be done? You know, they didn't believe that it could be done. And then the, the next question was, well, what, it's, this is, these are U.S. dollars, what are we going to learn from it? Well, it's about locally applied antibiotics. And guess what? We're doing our own locally applied antibiotic studies here. And they get great follow-up there, and it's a lot more inexpensive of a solution that they're developing there that could be brought here. So that's what we can learn. And so all of those things need to be addressed. They need to be addressed on the, you know, the individual level, the network level, and also the, the funder level, that we have so much to, to benefit as a world group together than we do as individuals or, or siloed countries. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say to you, just as a quick follow-up is, you know, getting the major agencies that are funding work, let's say in the US, the National Institute of Health or Canada, the Canadian Institute of Health Research to understand that meaningful research on questions requires collaboration outside of our respective countries and putting money into programs where some of it is being moved elsewhere isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because some questions will just never get answered in the United States and will never get answered in Canada unless we find these networks. And I think we've had some success. I know you've had some success there, but that is, I think, a place where we can start at least providing some reasonable funds for our collaborating partners. Yeah, and again, Mo, you're, you're the, the model for this. So um, a lot of the stuff that we've tried to implement is you know learning from your experience. Yeah, so Ted, uh, your group has had uh, great success with these relationships in multiple countries and multiple environments. And there's always the uh, the interface between uh, assisting with improving clinical care uh, on the one hand, and then trying to help individuals in centers who are interested in doing research to, to do the research. And I think one of the reasons why your group has been so successful is you you come with a great deal of humility that you don't know the best way of treating these problems in an individual country. Uh, and that sets the stage uh, for uh, personal relationships where you can learn from one another. And I think that's a great example and why you've been able to change the paradigm from medical tourism that you spoke of earlier towards a longstanding working relationship. But my question is, how does the, the dialogue that you have in establishing research questions and research programs assist with improvement of clinical care? What, what's, that, what's that dialogue like? How do you work with your colleagues in, let's say, a, a, a South American country to establish a question that can have the benefit of improving clinical care? Well, that's that can be done on a variety of levels. So. On the short term, establishing relationships that are trusting relationships where you can go and, and visit these places and work with societies. So, you, um, for example, Argentina's or, or Cuba are, are two good examples recently that we've been able to, to work with um, those groups. And so um, we've been able to go to their, um, their scholarly meetings and, um, and talk about different uh, you know, different ways of, of treating things. Um, but then what we've been able to do is engage the groups and find out really what the differences are in their countries and where the gaps are. So in Buenos Aires, for example, they have outstanding, you know, standards in care. But in the more interior regions of the country where there's, it's, they're very much more rural and, and have different resources. They have a very different population uh, and, and different resource pool and different training. So what we've been trying to do is understand what some of the differences through the research are between Buenos Aires and those other areas, and then specifically use the pulpit of their um, academic organizations to attempt to address some of those discrepancies that exist and really help them identify and help them rectify or, or bridge gaps in, in care. And that's this is an example how you can um, try to, to, to use that. And 
The same sort of thing has been true in Cuba is really trying to understand what the differences are throughout the country and try to help them come up with solutions for bridging the gaps. It's just an an example of way that, that that can be done. That's great. Thanks. Mo, do you have the last question? You know, I mean, I guess it's it's probably more of a, a comment, but I'm sure Ted, you can speak to this. I mean, a big part, I think, of of the work that you've been doing, and I think some of the importance of doing some of these larger collaborative programs has been to, you know, get better ideas, uh, ultimately move ideas forward uh, that are far more creative. It's a big thing of my own reflection over time, and you know, through the big uh, diversity word. But if you get diversity in culture, diversity in geography, diversity in age, diversity in gender. The larger networks that you know the IOTA creates is just that group where some of the biggest challenges are likely going to have um, the right people in the room for the right solutions. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the importance of that as we think more as one rather than separate groups as we think about big problems. Yeah, it, and I think that's you know a very good point. Uh, and and it gets to the impact piece of it and why you would work through societies and society leaders. Um, obviously, each society has their own politics and um, uh, they have their own hierarchies. And, and um, But by and large, they've already identified like the, the leaders of not just the society, but of the different areas and um, people who can make an impact. So we, we developed a leadership um, development course, um, not to go too far on a tangent, but this, I think this is very relevant. Um, Mark, a while back, had sort of revolutionized um, through the AOA and then later the OTA, um, how we looked at governance of different organizations. That was really critical in, in, in a lot of groups developing uh, their capacities in the United States academic societies. The, the same thing can be said of, of Latin American groups, and we've tried to develop a leadership course modeled after some of the ones that the AOA and others have done for their leadership. Well, we get everybody in the room and they identify whether they are politically in or not, but by and large, they're they're identifying the leaders that are in the room. Those are the people that can make change. Those are the people that, um, uh, you know, that everybody has opinions, but they know um, the situations, they know how to influence their groups. And if you can somehow work with them to, to have them be the, they ultimately are the ones going to have the influences anyway. It's not going to be some person from San Francisco going to tell people how to do things. It's going to be the, those groups trying to influence the others in their country or organization to make change. And I, I see that as a, as, a, as a big way to make change. It's, it's based on individual relationships, but then it goes to the larger group to be able to work within infrastructures and capacities that they trust to be able to make differences. Yeah, it's very much along the issue of the biggest questions are often the simple ones. So if you have a large group of people, it's easier to unite them on, we have to eradicate infection, then you know, we need to purchase the most expensive AI functioning robot for every you know, c- country. I'm not saying that's not an important issue, but for the large global questions, I think we've got to find those ones that unite us all. That's great. Well, Ted, thanks very much uh, for your leadership in all of these areas around the world. And we will continue to follow your lead uh, as you show us how to do this. We look forward to 
the next IOTA meeting, I think is in Mexico uh, in 27 or 26. I can't remember. What year is it? Uh, it is the next meeting is in 25. 2025 in Guadalajara. Okay, good. Well, we we look forward to attending that and we'll continue to follow what you're doing with your great submissions of uh, trials done in in uh, developing world countries, uh, which we enjoy publishing at the journal. Uh, and uh, thanks for spending the time this morning and look for this absolutely priceless uh, traveler mug to come in the mail sometime in the next week or two. To add to your host of many other branded cups, I'm sure you have a lot there, Ted, but we're going to give you one more. We're going to give you one more. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and thanks for the invitation. It's it's awesome. great to to be able to chat with you know two such distinguished leaders and share. Oh, thanks uh, yeah, share thanks for everything you've done. I mean, you've yeah. in many ways pioneered a lot of the things you've talked about. So I really appreciate everything you've done. Good. Have a good day, Ted. All right. Thanks, Mo. Ted. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Yeah. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.